thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Today we're continuing in our series, Emmanuel, uh, with a message entitled, Child of Miracle and Prophecy, talking about the virgin birth. When God is spoken in history through a variety of means, we theologically call that revelation. Revelation is just a cognate of the word, to be revealed. So the idea is God reveals himself in a variety of ways. When God is spoken in history the loudest, it is typically involved supernatural events. There's all kinds of revelation. There's what we call general revelation, and you see general revelation when you look into the sky and see the stars, or you look under a microscope and see the complexity of the world that we live in, and that sort of screams that there must be a creator, somebody who created order out of chaos, and that would be God. That's general revelation. Special revelation is how God has communicated himself to us in more personal ways. We, we have the scriptures, that's special revelation. Ultimately, the person of Christ is special revelation. But miracles are special revelation. Prophecy is a form of special revelation. Miracles are basically when someone or something, in our view, God, violates or sets aside the laws that govern our world. Natural laws, the laws of nature, they're set aside and something happens that just doesn't fit in. That's why they scream of the divine. We notice when the Red Sea parts and the children of Israel walk across on dry land and there's a wall of water on each side, we notice things like that because they don't happen every day. We notice when somebody walks on water because the only time you can walk on water up here is in the middle of winter. It's not normal other than that. We notice when leprosy is, is healed instantly. We notice when a storm ceases that's threatening lives. We notice when a dead person is alive because those are miracles. They violate the laws of nature. And we notice when a virgin gets pregnant without sexual contact. Miracles jump out as the work of an outsider, someone who does not have to conform to nature's laws. To the open-minded, it points us to the question of God. Prophecy is also supernatural, but in a different sort of way. Prophecy involves predictions of future events that eventually come true. Now, now that's not an easy task. Have you ever tried to predict the future? If you, if you could, you'd be wealthy. You'd invest in the right stocks that went up. You'd avoid the ones that don't. It's not easy to predict the future. Here's a few humorous examples of our attempts to do that. How about this group? Decca Recording in 1962 said, we don't like their sound and guitar music is on the way out, and so they did not sign the Beatles. How about this? In 1996, a publishing company letter to J.K. Rowling, children just aren't interested in witches and wizards anymore. But they were interested in Harry Potter. How about this from the National Cancer Institute in 1954? If excessive smoking actually plays a role in the formation of lung cancer, it's a minor one. 
How about this? Rod Thorne, he was the Bulls GM in 1984. That was the year they drafted a special player named Michael Jordan, and he was really disappointed about it. He said, I wish Jordan were seven feet tall, but he's not. Jordan isn't going to turn this franchise around. And he was just deploring the fact that he couldn't find somebody seven foot tall to add to that team that year. He went on to be, I believe, the greatest player in the history of basketball. How about this? Eddie Bond, a radio host in 1954, telling Elvis Presley, stick to your day job. Or how about this? Uh, this is particularly appealing to some maybe U.S. citizens. He doesn't have that presidential look, United Artists executive rejecting Ronald Reagan as the lead and the best man. Predicting the future is difficult. I mean, it's, it's really impossible. Even brilliant business minds get it wrong on business trends and, and the future of technology. It's incredibly hard to see the future and get it right. So when God brings to pass events that he foretells throughout history, it screams out in, in a, a form of miracle in my mind, it screams out that he controls everything. So I would look at fulfilled prophecy as sort of providential miracles. They're miracles of history. The virgin birth is actually both. It's a prophecy of a miracle. Think about that. It's a miracle and it's fulfilled prophecy, a prophecy of a miracle. It divides Orthodox Christians from those who reject the miraculous. It, it causes people to believe in Jesus and it causes others to reject Jesus because it seems too fanciful and impossible. And it's one of the most cherished stories in salvation history. And I'm going to read that for you out of the Gospel of Matthew. If you have a Bible, there's one near you. It's where the New Testament begins, page one of the New Testament, about three-quarters of the way through the Bible in front of you. Matthew chapter one, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, now he quotes Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now I want to look through the history of this theological tenet that we hold very dear First, a subtle first hint of the virgin birth is actually given to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Now, liberal scholars, and I'll talk about that a little bit, so scholars who reject the miraculous, who reject the nature of God ordaining the scriptures, liberal scholars have worked hard to assault the grammatical basis for the virgin birth prophecy. So they try to tear apart the words and say, this just really isn't literal prophecy. It's not what they were saying. It's not miraculous. And so they go after the word meanings. But the Old Testament prophecies 
about the virgin birth are actually quite compelling. Now, we all know the primary passage. It's the one that Matthew quotes. It's from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, probably about seven centuries or so before the birth of Jesus. That's the big one. It's the one Matthew mentions, but it's not actually the first. The first passage about the virgin birth actually comes in Genesis 3.15 in that text. We're going to put that up for you. So this is after the fall, after Adam and Eve had that first fruit salad, and it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the devil. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, or he will crush your head, talking about Jesus crushing the power of Satan someday. You shall bruise him on the heel. We believe that's a reference to the crucifixion. In other words, Satan, you will injure this God-man who comes to rescue humanity, but he's going to ultimately crush you. It's sort of the first hint of the gospel, and it's on the third page of Scripture. It's actually incredible prophecy. Now, this certainly states that the woman's seed will defeat Satan at a minimum. You can get that from here. The woman's seed is going to defeat Satan who deceived her. In fact, it's interesting how Eve actually took this, and I've read a little bit about this, and you may not know this, but a chapter later, she has a baby. She has a baby named Cain. And what's interesting about this, if you look at the Hebrew text there, and, and scholars have struggled with this passage, so they actually fill in words that aren't in the text to help complete a thought that may have not been intended when Moses wrote it the first time. When she has her first child, she is thinking of this promise, and she's thinking her first child is the one who will defeat Satan. She's thinking her first child might be a God-man. Therefore, Genesis 4.1, right after she has Cain, she says this, I have gotten a man-child the Lord. So it's very possible she thinks she has had sort of a God child that's going to defeat Satan. And because scholars don't know what to do with that, they've literally taken your text and it says, I have gotten a man child with the help of the Lord, and completely ignored what Eve might have thought wrongly, that she was giving birth to a God man who would defeat Satan. Some would argue also that the seed of a woman, or her seed, actually excludes the possibility of a father. So think about this. The Septuagint, I'm sorry, a little, a little bit of uh, church history and scholarship here. A couple of centuries before Jesus, there was a Greek rendition of the Old Testament. So they took the Hebrew, they turned it into Greek. And when they read this verse in Greek, they literally told the seed of the woman, her sperma, her sperma. If a masculine pronoun was used there, by Moses, a virgin birth could not have happened. Think about that. First pages of Scripture. If they say something like the seed of humanity instead of the seed of the woman, if they said the seed of humanity, it would have had a masculine uh, nominative singular, would have been kind of how that word was constructed. You could not have had a virgin birth. So this is the first prophecy, sort of in seminal form. And the prophets never forgot this verse. So when the key prophecy in Isaiah 14 takes place thousands and thousands of years later, what does Isaiah say? He doesn't say a virgin. He says the virgin. There's a definite article there, and it has an antecedent, and it looks back on Genesis 3.15. Isaiah knows there's going to be a virgin. It's going to give birth to a God-man. 
And he says, the virgin, the one we've been looking forward to, all the way back to the third page in Scripture. So a subtle first hint is given to Eve that there will be a God-man who will defeat Satan. Then Isaiah amplifies the promise of a virgin birth. This is the verse we all know. This is the primary passage. It's the one uh, upon which sort of the virgin birth is predicated most. It's the one Matthew actually quotes. Now, I just want you to hold that thought for just a second. I want to say something to you. Now, hear me, okay? Hear me. Don't, Don't interpose something I'm not saying. We don't need a prophesied virgin birth. If liberal scholars can prove that Isaiah 7:14 isn't talking about a virgin birth, we would still have a virgin birth. We don't need the prophecy. We would still have the New Testament evidence of it. We could simply begin with the story of Mary and Joseph and them not coming together before Jesus is born. We don't need this prophecy to have the Son of God. But what if it's true? What if on the third page of Scripture, God says this to Eve, and then seven centuries before Jesus, specifically says that virgin talked about in Genesis 3 is going to give birth to this God-man who will be God with us. Now, Isaiah 7, 14, the primary passage about the virgin birth, which Matthew quotes, you can look at that verse in Matthew there. It, it takes place in a unit of literature in the book of Isaiah known as the book of Emmanuel. That actually is mentioned three different times, the book of Emmanuel. And Isaiah 7 contains prophecies. Now, this is what's confusing, and this is why people struggle to believe this is a prophecy of the virgin birth, because when you're looking in Isaiah, there's some stuff going on that this passage seems to refer to. There are difficulties going on in the days of Isaiah. They're sort of under attack. They're going to be taken over by a foreign power, and this prophecy is in response to that. Israel's under attack. The house of David, the messianic line could be wiped out. Then there'd be no savior. And Isaiah is there to advise and to predict the future. And so when he gives these predictions, he's giving prophecies to the king in, you know, 700 and something B.C., short-term, immediate prophecies and promises. And when those are taking place, there's a singular pronoun, you. This is what's going to happen to you, Ahaz. And that's how you know he's talking about the immediate future. He's talking to the king, Ahaz. Stay with me. He also then intermixes prophecies about the future of the nation far into the future. And when he does that, he's talking to the nation, the house of David. And there he says you, and it's actually a plural pronoun in the Hebrew. So that's how we know whether he's talking to Ahaz right then or whether he's talking about something that happens in the future. And when you have Isaiah 7:14, he's jumping back or he's jumping forward into the future. He looks back to Genesis 3 and he says, the virgin will be with child. And he's giving us this, this plural pronoun for the house of David. And it assures them of a future. And then he adds the element of divinity, and he says you're going to call him Emmanuel. It will be God with us. Now, that's new information. In fact, that's such new information that even in the time of Jesus, nobody expected Jesus to be the Son of God. We understand it as Christians, but looking back, even in Jewish culture, they did not expect Jesus to be the Son of God, the Messiah to be the Son of God. God with us could just be, you know, uh, an individual whose God's hand is on in a great way. And so God will be with us through this individual. They did not understand God with us meant the person of the Godhead entering the human family. So Isaiah amplifies this promise. 
Some have questioned the word virgin in the Old Testament, said it really doesn't mean that. It's the word alma. It could mean young woman. Now, what's interesting is when you find every use of that word in the Hebrew, it never refers to a married woman. It always could be a virgin. And when the Septuagint translates this into Greek in the second century, it uses Greek word parthenos, which always means virgin. So Old Testament scholars believed there would be a virgin birth. That's the technical side of it. And then we have the story. Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's promise, God with us. It's one of the most beautiful stories in the history of literature, not just in the Bible. And Matthew begins by establishing Jesus' legal right, so you have that sort of boring genealogy, but he made it less boring because he threw in some of the bad girls of the Bible in there just to show that God is close to our humanity. So you've got this, this genealogy to prove Jesus' lineage, that he's the son of Abraham, that he's Jewish because the Messiah has to be Jewish, and that he's the son of David because Messiah has to be from the house of David, and now he's going to prove that he's the son of God through this virgin birth. Joseph is from the house of David. So Jesus, or Matthew is proving that Jesus has a lineage going back to the house of Joseph, or the, the house of David, and Joseph is going to be his father. Now we know Joseph really isn't his biological father, but he is his legal father. So here's the problem. Joseph is necessary, and if this relationship with Mary breaks up, we've got a problem in that Jesus will not be legitimately from the house of David. He needs this legal father. So if he leaves Mary and doesn't believe her story, the whole plan falls apart, and Jesus is just a Messiah wannabe. There's three stages in Jewish marriage in the ancient world. So in the ancient world, it was the perfect world because parents arranged marriages for all their children. I love that world. I dream of that world. At night, I, in my sleep, I fantasize about that world, that somehow I could just choose the spouses for all of my children. But they've, they've done pretty well, three, three out of four. The last one, I'm sure she'll make a good choice. But there were three stages to marriage in that culture. One of them was engagement. Now, we understand engagement. We get engaged, but this was a little different. You could be engaged back then when you were seven years of age or maybe younger. So there was no, you know, ChristianTingle.com or GalileanGal.com, PromisedLandPrincess.net. There was none of that back then. That was funny. Come on. Tough crowd. Marriages were arranged. Perfect world for parents. Sometimes professional matchmakers would actually help with that. And so you might very likely be engaged as a young child and have never even met. You could be engaged and never have met the person that you're going to be married to. Now, there was engagement, and then there was betrothal. Betrothal was a little bit later. So you might be, you know, 13 or 14 as a girl, 17 or 18. Could somebody find Peter? We're having a lot of feedback up here, and I think he's in doing the online version. You would get betrothed. So you're 13 or 14 as, as a gal, and you're probably 17 or 18 as a young man. Eventually, you're going to meet. Any contact is going to likely be supervised. Normally, if the bride or groom wants out, the parents will relent. So if the bride or groom meets the person at this betrothal stage, maybe they spend a little supervised time together, and one of them is thinking, Mom and Dad, what were you thinking? Parents are probably going to back down. 
So sometime in their teens, a short ceremony makes them husband and wife. But here's the thing. They become husband and wife at this betrothal ceremony. They're in their teen years, which is when people got married in the ancient world. Just think about that. That's scary. They left as they came. So they come to the wedding. They're betrothed. They're named husband and wife. And then they say, see you later. And they go home with their families. For a year, roughly, there's no consummation whatsoever of this marriage. They're legally married, but they're not together. The groom would go and he'd prepare a home. This is sort of what the second coming is, you know, the rapture is based on. The groom goes to prepare a home for the bride, and he's going to return with a parade of friends and relatives once that home is ready, and she's got to be ready during that whole time. She doesn't know exactly when he's going to come. But here's the deal. Think about this legally. If he dies during that year, just to make a point about the the lack of physical and sexual contact, if he dies during that year where they're betrothed, they're husband and wife, but the marriage isn't consummated, here's the technical legal term used of her at that point. She will be a widow who is a virgin. That's the legal term for her then, a widow who is a virgin. Wrap your head around that one. If either of them cheat, during that year, it is considered adultery. They've never been together yet, but if either of them cheat, it's considered adultery. If he dies, she's a widow who is a virgin. So betrothal was marriage for a year, but no physical contact. And then after about a year, they would have this formal marriage. The bride would stay ready at all times. The groom would come with the wedding party. He would take her home. And then a week of feasting takes place, and that's sort of the honeymoon. The bride and the groom are together. They're actually called sort of king and queen for, for a week, even though they, they might be very poor. They were just the celebrities for that week. And everyone, awkward, everyone is on the honeymoon with you. So glad we changed that cultural issue. Mom and dad, aunts and uncles, cousins, they're all there for a week for the bride and groom. And it was during this second stage, the betrothal, before that formal marriage, that Mary becomes pregnant. This is that in-between time where for a year they have no physical contact. And anything they do together would be supervised. They might get to know each other a little bit, but they're not together So Joseph has been preparing a home for Mary. He's a carpenter. He's working really hard on that. And after Mary becomes pregnant, the angel visits her, tells her she's going to be pregnant. She says, how could this be? I'm a virgin. Says the Spirit of God, the power of the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. What will be conceived in you is of the Holy Spirit. He'll be the Son of God. He'll save his people from their sins. Mary knows this, but she knows it's impossible to explain this to Joseph. So, from the Gospel of Luke, we know that Mary left and went and visited Elizabeth, her cousin, who's carrying John the Baptist, and she's six months pregnant. She spent a little time there, and then she knows she's got to go home and face Joseph. And so she came home probably beginning to show with her unbelievable story. And I say unbelievable because most people don't believe it. He planned legal action. He was a good guy. The Bible says he was a righteous man. Of course she had committed adultery. Of course she had cheated on him. Of course he should not believe this fanciful, ridiculous story about an angel but he's a good guy. He doesn't want to embarrass her publicly. 
He was looking forward to be marrying to her. She made a mistake. And so he thinks, I'm just going to divorce her privately, give her a certificate of divorce, write it in front of a couple of witnesses, and it will be over. And I'll move on with my life and find somebody who can be faithful to me. So she's about to lose Joseph. And Jesus is about to become illegitimate. Jesus is about to lose his Davidic lineage. Jesus is about to be disqualified as the Messiah. His kingly qualifications are dependent on this marriage between Joseph and Mary. So when he had considered this divorce, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. In other words, take her home, this third part of marriage where you bring her home. For the child who's been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you'll call his name Jesus or Savior for he'll save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. But it's very clear here. He's taken her home now. This is the third stage of marriage, but except he didn't consummate the marriage, kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The virgin birth is credible. It is a miracle, it is a prophecy, it is a prophecy of a miracle all the way back to creation's first days. I just want to close with a few thoughts. Child of miracle and prophecy apps first trust the historians. You know, at some point all of us have to make a decision about this book, don't we? I mean, that really is what it comes down to. The older I get, the more I just realize, you know, it's not easy to believe everything in here but you really can't be a follower of Jesus if you don't. Now we might agree on a few things, disagree on a few things, maybe that's okay, but it's hard sometimes to believe everything in this book and that's why so many people reject the miraculous and you can't really be a Christian and reject the miraculous. The book doesn't make sense anymore. And the reason I say trust the historians is this. The writers of scripture viewed themselves as writers of history when you look at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke and he talks about how he's running around trying to catch eyewitnesses who were you know, at the crucifixion. He's got information about the birth narratives of Jesus that nobody else has because he as a doctor, as a researcher, went to the, the hills of Judea and talked to Zechariah and Elizabeth, talked to people who knew them, got information about it. They were historians. They were not writing religious literature. They were writing history that happened to have supernatural elements in it. Think of the Bible that way. Don't look at it as just a religious book. It is a book of history. In fact, the secular parts of the Bible, the things that aren't about miracles and, and everything that seems supernatural, the secular parts of the Bible have been proven over and over and over to be reliable, to be amazingly accurate. Customs from ancient civilizations, the existence of ancient civilizations that was actually questioned. In some cases, the Bible was the first place that, that uh, archaeologists would find evidence of a civilization. They would say, well, that can't be true. We haven't found it anywhere else. And they do archaeological digs, and guess what? The Hittites did exist. And they find all kinds of things in history. And the Bible was their first reference point. But they disbelieved it because the Bible's a religious book. Customs, civilization, people, places, events, 
The Bible is not proven wrong on those things. Those elements stand alongside of the religious elements. So here's my question for you. Why would the writers be perfectly accurate on all of the secular or non-miraculous elements of the scriptures and then lie and mislead us on the rest of us? Why would they be so careful with history and then be ruthlessly irresponsible with the supernatural? And then at the end, be willing to die for the lie, like the apostles were willing to do. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. If it's not true as written, just think of the New Testament. If it's not true as written, the crucifixion would have been the end. I mean, I'd be happy if I was an apostle in the days of Jesus. I'll follow Jesus for a while and, and maybe watch him do some miracles, you know, be one of the 12. I mean, that's cool. It's like, I mean, what a promotion from being a fisherman. But when Jesus is put to dead and you think you're next, that's the time to walk away for good. But then three days later, when he's risen from the dead and you've seen him, you can't ever walk away. They wouldn't die for a lie. This is history. And the religious and supernatural, miraculous elements of it are history. Trust the historians. Second, don't disbelieve because it's a miracle. What's a God to do? And I'm sort of being a little cute with that, but what is our God to do? But what's any God to do to prove himself if not through things that don't fit into the laws of nature? Listen to this story. Near the end of the 18th century, the Western world first encountered the duck-billed platypus. Cute little creature. The platypus, which is indigenous to Australia, has fur over its entire body. It's the size of a rabbit, but it has webbed feet, and it lays eggs. So it looks like it's going to be a mammal, and then, well, not really. It reproduces like a reptile. When the skin of a platypus was first brought to Europe, it was greeted with complete amazement. Was it a mammal or a reptile? The platypus seemed so bizarre that despite the physical evidence, they had a skin right there, and the testimony of eyewitnesses, Many Londoners dismissed it as a sham. It's sort of like, you know, what you see over people's mantles, the rabbit with the deer horns, you know? Which, when you're little, you think is real. Like, where are those rabbits? Not until a pregnant platypus was shot and brought to London for observers to see with their own eyes did people begin to believe it was a real animal. Until this happened, some of the greatest thinkers refused to accept the existence of the platypus. The initial problem was that it did not fit some people's view of how the world operated. So they rejected it. And they reached a verdict, even though the weight of the evidence said otherwise. Historically, throughout most of history, people recognized that miracles signaled the supernatural. Miracles are an evidence that something outside of the laws of nature is operating in our world and they were a cause to belief. But God has a little bit of a problem right now in the modern world. Once we entered modernity or modernism, there developed the trust in reason and science. And it's why the Bible became harder to believe because miracles don't fit into that. So the virgin birth doesn't seem very reasonable. And the, what I'm getting at here in this point is this. What's God supposed to do to get noticed if we rule out the possibility of the miraculous in reality? What is God supposed to do? How would we ever know it was God unless it was somebody operating outside of normalcy? 
outside of the laws of nature. It's always worked for God until now. Third, remember the purpose of the virgin birth, which was your salvation. God wasn't just trying to do something really cool and unusual. Now, some people wonder why, why did we need a virgin birth? And, and there's two possible reasons for this. Some people say it was necessary to avoid the sinful nature. Now what's interesting about it, ladies, you'll really appreciate this theological premise, but there's something called seminal headship, which means it's the male through semen that passes on the sim nature. How many women believe it is your husband who's passing on the sim nature? Every hand should be up. I mean, come on. We all know you're better creatures than we are. That's called seminal headship. Federal headship believes that Adam just sinned for all of us and it isn't related to physically passing on the sin nature. So some people believe the reason we had a virgin birth was so that Jesus wouldn't have a human father passing on a sin nature. Other people believe it's simply how God sort of infused divinity into humanity. It's how Jesus became the son of God. We're not sure, we'll find out in heaven. It'll be an interesting debate. Either way, the bigger reason is you, is to give us a savior. Leith Anderson writes, several years ago I was visiting Manila, the Philippines, and was taken of all places to the Manila garbage dump. Saw something beyond belief. Tens of thousands of people make their homes on that dump site. They've constructed shacks out of the things other people have thrown away. They send their children out every morning to scavenge for food out of other people's garbage so they can have family meals. People have been born and grown up there on the garbage dump. They have had their families there, their children, their shacks, their garbage to eat, and finished out their lives and died in that dump without ever going anywhere else, even in the city of Manila. It's an astonishing thing, a sad thing. He said, but, but foreigners also live on that garbage dump. They're missionaries. Christians who have chosen to leave their own country and communicate the love of Jesus Christ to people who otherwise would never hear it. It's amazing to me. People would leave what we have to go and live in a garbage dump. Amazing. He says, but not as amazing as the journey from heaven to earth that God made. The Son of God made that journey and he knew what he was doing. He knew where he was going. He knew what the sacrifice would be. It would be his own life and he journeyed from heaven to earth on a mission to save the human race and you. Have you taken advantage of that great gift? The virgin birth is, it's important, but it's important because of what we got. We got God in the flesh who loved you enough to come into this world to die for you so that when you simply come to a point of faith and acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, that what he did on the cross 33 years later paid the penalty for your sins. It satisfied the wrath of a holy God so that when you in faith trust in his sacrifice, his sacrifice then is placed on your account as atonement for your sins. And when you acknowledge him as Son of God and Savior, and allow him to enter your life as Lord, you become one of his children and get the benefits of the virgin birth which gave us our Savior. God, we thank you for your word. 
Thank you that you were willing to come into this world to be born of a virgin so that we would have God in the flesh who walked among us, who spoke to us, who performed miracles, perhaps thousands of miracles, in the view of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people to give testimony that it is you that was here. And we have a record of that. Not a complete record, a a small record, but a record that is enough to prove that you are who you say you are. The King of Israel and our God. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.